Hey guys, welcome to another episode. Hello, hello. Hope everyone is okay and doing well. Yes, yes. Be safe and, you know, just take care of yourself and your loved ones. So tonight we have a special guest coming from North Carolina. Her name is Rose Reef, if that's correct and pronounce it. Yes, that's it. Rose Reef. Oh, nice. Rose Reef. Thank you. Is a licensed <laughs> clinical mental health counselor, a certified rehabilitation counselor, and a qualified development disability and mental health professional. She's also board certified in providing telemental health, and Rose supports special need parents and disabled adults in her counseling practice nice. in North Carolina, Cary, North Carolina, to be exact. And the reason why we had brought her on to our show is that we've thought about parents who are going through the struggles of trying to, you know, basically maintain their relationships because, you know, it is Valentine's week coming up, you know, the weekend of love and all those things, but also the health of the relationship itself because raising a child with needs and medical issues can be very, very stressful. So a lot of parents don't know who to turn to or what to do. Um, I think we've mentioned this in the show before, right, Nina? Definitely, yeah. It's... um. It's an issue, almost like unspoken. Yes. Because your your focus tends to be on your child, and you kind of forget about your relationship or yes. your own personal health. So we're really excited to ask um, Rose a lot of questions and what she's seeing in our practice. Yes, definitely. Rose, thank you and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes. So tell us, like, what made you decide that this is the path for me. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to work with people with disabilities just from a very young age. That was that was something that I was interested in. And so, you know, went to college. That was my mission. Straight out of college, you know, at the ripe old age of 22, I was handed a management role um, running group homes and supervising support for adults with disabilities. And I, I loved that work. I loved being a case manager and running group homes. Um, but in that role, you know, I, was, I did that for about 10 years. And I saw that mental health services for adults with disabilities were really lacking. That there's a ton of supports for younger kids, a lot of transition services. And then after the age of 22, you're done with high school. And it was like everything just disappeared. Yes. And so... Yeah, I had clients who, you know, were just going through regular life stuff. Like they would be, you know, anxious about starting a new job or grieving because a parent died. Just, you know, everyday things that everyone experiences. And we could not find a mental health counselor to work with them. And so, like I said, it took me about 10 years. But finally, I figured out, you know, I I could be this person. I see this need. I love working with this community. Um, this could be me. So I was very fortunate. Um, I'd gone to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad. I'm still living and working in Chapel Hill. And I realized that within the medical school at UNC, there's actually this program very specific called rehabilitation counseling, uh, which is actually geared specifically towards mental health and disability. So I said, perfect. I'll do that. So went and got my master's and straight out of grad school, started a private practice and knew that this was what I wanted to do. And I've been in practice for about, I don't know, six months or so. And I started to get a lot of calls from parents who would say, look, I I heard you speak or I read your blog post or whatever. And I just feel like you understand this in a way that, you know, I've tried to talk to other therapists about what my life is like raising my child and they just don't get it. Um, 
And so I sort of realized, oh, there's this other unmet need in the community that parents raising disabled kids really, you know, their mental health challenges are not very well understood and certainly not very well supported, um, you know, in the mental health world. And so started, you know, working with parents in my practice as well. And that was eight years ago at this point. And so now my practice is about 50-50 between working with adults who have a variety of disabilities, whether it's, you know, developmental disabilities, acquired disabilities, um, folks who are neurodivergent, or working with parents, the other folks that I work with. Wow. You know, just thinking about (laughs) it, I, I just have to say thank you for taking that leap of faith of going towards this path. Because when you mentioned that you work with young adults with disabilities and, you know, having their parent move on, then they have to deal with that loss. And then also now mm-hmm. dealing with parents who are dealing with it every day, you know, with a child that has a disability. And it's like, thank you. You know, thank you for taking on such a service because it is really needed because the numbers are climbing when it comes to children with special needs. They certainly are. I mean, I, I appreciate that, but I, I have to say, I love what I do. I love my clients. I, I wish I had more competition. I wish other therapists saw that there's this tremendous need for, for mental health folks who understand the, the world of chronic disability. Yes, it, it, it is. It is a big issue. Now, what is it that you're seeing um, with, you know, parents as they're dealing? Because mm-hmm. I know personally for uh, myself and Nina, I mean, there was a there was some moments where it was like, uh, we're not going to make it. And then mm-hmm. going into COVID, we're like, we're definitely not going to make it because, <laughs> you know, we're kind of locked in and it's just us. And it was like, there's no other outlet. Um, but we survived. And uh, so it's when you're dealing, when you're talking to these parents, like what are the most common things that they're saying that, you know, that's really bringing the stress between the their, between them and each other? Sure. Like so specifically for couples, for, for parents trying to work together. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was emphatic. <laughs> I got y'all in surround sound. Um, you can tell this is going to be a therapy moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. It's good. Um, so the you know the challenges are broad, and it's really strange because you have two people living the same reality, sharing a household, sharing parenting tasks, but often on two very different internal journeys. Um, you know, and I'm going to overgeneralize here. But, you know, usually there's one parent who sort of steps into that primary caregiver role. And so they feel burdened by the day-to-day task and sort of feel the weight of, oh, my gosh, I have all these new things, new appointments, new, you know, terms I have to learn, um, you know, new therapies to go to. I, I, my life has dramatically, you know, been in upheaval, sometimes have to quit my job, Um and then I'm still, you know, the day-to-day isn't all that it is. I'm, I'm worried about the future, right? Who's going to do this when I can't do this anymore? And then they start to feel resentment towards the parent who's, you know, maybe still working full-time, doesn't have the availability to be as present. And so that person has those feelings going on. And then the parent who maybe is, you know, the full-time primary breadwinner or just isn't, isn't the child's, you know, kind of main person for whatever reason is left feeling like I lost. I lost my partner and starts to maybe resent the child a little bit and resent the caregiving tasks and be sort of stuck. Like, when are we going to get back to normal? Um, you know, almost maybe not totally realizing the trajectory that the child may be on, depending on the nature of their disability. And so it's really hard because couples, you know, when they come in often have, are in very different places and want very different things. 
um, from each other. And so it can be really a struggle to find common ground. Okay. Please excuse the silence. It's just out. I just went to a deep <laughs> thought because I'm like, she's been in our home. <laughs> she knows us. <laughs> I feel her here. But yeah, and I well, see I, what you're I saying. I hope that helps people to feel heard and seen, you know, because it, it, I think everybody feels like we're the only ones who feel this way, but you know, you're not, not at all. This is, this is normal. This is okay to, to say that, wow, that's, that's us right now. Yeah. Um, we have to honestly say we've had some real, and really some, like I could say some traumatic moments and there was moments we, we did have somewhat resentments toward each other because, um, as you mentioned, you know, the one person that's always home care. That was me. I was home, um, for a good, almost a year, uh, mm-hmm. you know, taking care of Aiden and seeing, um, just day to days and, um, basically taking him to doctor appointments. My wife was the breadwinner at the time. I wish I, mm-hmm. you know, we understood the roles. We knew what we were supposed to do and we just did it. But as you said, we kind of like somewhat kind of like faded apart. Like we had two different perspectives of what was supposed to be happening between each other. But at the same time, our whole focus was on aiding. So it's like, we didn't even recognize it was like two strangers in a home. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So dealing with it, the number of the parents that you've worked with, how many of them do stick through it and, um, and work it out? And the others that just said, I can't do this anymore. I gotcha. So, you know, I can certainly speak to that anecdotally. Um, You know, most, most of the parents I've supported in my practice stay together, Oh, great! but let me just talk, talk to the data as well, because, you know, there, there've been a couple of big news stories over the years with very splashy headlines, you know, special needs parents at, you know, critical risk of divorce, yeah. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's not really true. Oh, it's not. Um, no, it's really not. There's there's a couple key markers. We know that couples who have kids with significant behavioral challenge pro- challenges prior to the age of seven are at more risk of um, divorcing. But that couples whose um, children's behavioral challenges are not as extreme, and couples who can make it past that seven year point, which you know is kind of a magic number, but for reasons we don't understand, um, that that you know, they tend to stay together and, and generally remark that, you know, they are more satisfied in their relationship years down the road. Um, so I think it speaks to couples who were strong before find ways to maintain that resilience. Maybe couples who were already at risk of divorce prior to having a child with significant needs. It just sort of shines a magnifying glass on, on what's going on, um, is my interpretation of the data. So basically you're saying if they were at risk of getting divorced, they probably were at risk of getting divorced prior to the child. Exactly. Like the child just represents one more stressor on an already unstable relationship. Oh, that makes um, sense. You know, but it, but people who were happy and healthy and resilient before the, before having the child, um, tend to find ways to maintain that. And, it, and, you know, they'll, they'll say, yeah, sure. This was significant and stressful and feel that resentment that I talked about, but, you know, find ways to, reestablish their roles and maintain their relationship. Um, It's interesting too, because as I'm, even as I'm talking about it, I'm just like spitballing here, but I also work with a lot of couples where one person has experienced a disability. So like maybe a partner has had a stroke, that kind of thing. Mm. And it's almost the same data that we see that, you know, couples that were in a good place before one of them has a major medical issue becomes disabled. They stay together. They find their resilience. They, they find new ways to be. 
um, even if they can't maintain their former roles. But, you know, it's, it's the couples who were kind of at risk and not in a, a solid, healthy relationship beforehand. You know, whatever it is, whether it's having a child with a disability or one partner themselves becoming disabled, you know, they are more at risk for divorce. Got it. In your practice, are you finding that the that the that people are coming in for couples therapy or are they doing it individually? Like, for example, right now, I've realized that I've I have a form of PTSD from, I know, my son mm-hmm. having so many traumatic seizures. And I was noticing yeah. I was getting like these flashbacks, like, like even the other day I was um walking on like on 125th is very uh, commonplace in Harlem and I remember when Aiden mm-hmm. was like 2 or 3 he had a seizure in that area and then I just got this flash mm. so I I started to pick that up about myself and I guess interviewing a lot of people on the podcast so I started to go to therapy Good for you but Osiris it does not are you finding that mm-hmm. maybe one will seek help and and not the other or are you finding that it's more a couple's thing so in my practice, I tend to work more with individuals, mm-hmm. um, and it does tend to be more women um, Got it. who seek out counseling. Um, and, and that's sort of true of mental health across the board. You know, in general, women get more diagnoses. In general, women seek out more treatment. Um, so I would say my practice definitely mirrors that. Um, you know, but there are but there are certainly couples that come in wanting support in their parenting, wanting support in their relationship as they navigate, um, you know, raising a child who has needs that they didn't anticipate. And now, particularly for me, are you finding um, as mothers, do you, they, they, they go through this process where they try to almost like take back the steps, like maybe blame themselves. Like I know I go through this, like maybe there was something I did when he was six months pregnant and I didn't take this. And are you finding that they kind of have to go through these steps of kind of figuring out what they did wrong and blaming themselves? 100%. Yeah. I, uh, I work with a lot of moms to reach, you know, the magical place that we call acceptance. And knowing that, you know, in, in almost every case, you didn't do anything wrong. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm very neurodiverse affirming. And so, you know, I really try to encourage my clients to see that, you know, especially with some of the developmental disabilities, whether it's autism or other intellectual issues, developmental issues, um, you know, we're only now really starting to understand how prevalent those things are and that it really is an acceptable way of being human, you know, to have autism, to have some of these, you know, issues, disabilities, however you want to think of them. Um, and that they didn't do anything wrong. They just live in a time where our recognition and understanding of these conditions is growing enormously. Right. And so, yeah, they didn't, they didn't do anything wrong. And if anything, they, they've helped their child by seeking out a diagnosis. Hmm. With the men um, that you do get to meet with, mm-hmm. do they some come out and say that they, you know, they blame them themselves or they blame their their partners? Neither. Neither. Okay. <laughs> Neither. Just, it is what it is. Yeah, they just stay silent. And they're like, yes. Is it hard to get information out of them? No, they 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 just you know they talk about the daily struggles. They talk about the anxiety. Uh-huh. Um, it's interesting. A lot of dads I support 
uh, come to me specifically again, cause I kind of have like the two niches going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll say, wow, you know, my child was just diagnosed with ADHD or autism or whatever. And I'm realizing that I think I have that too. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so actually a lot of the dads I see in my practice are sort of seeking out their own diagnosis later in life. Oh my God. I know why Osiris is silent because le- really? recent, <laughs> recently, I started diagnosing myself with like I said I think I have ADD that was undiagnosed. Yes. And I started doing that to myself. Yes. She has been self-diagnosing. I'm like you're killing me right now. <laughs> <laughs> it can be really validating. I have a client I love to tell this story. He was I think 66 when he sought out an autism diagnosis and like you, you saw the guy across the room and you, you could tell like, Oh yes, there's autism. Um, oh. like classic engineer type, very analytical, oh, yes. um, very like emotionally intense, but then seemed reserved to people who didn't quite get that. Didn't understand that, that dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, like of course, of course he had autism. Uh, but he said, I waited until I retired. And then that was my retirement gift to myself was, was getting an actual diagnosis. Oh, nice. oh wow. That's interesting. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. And not many people could do that. I mean, I, for one, have not done any self-diagnosis, so I will just keep it moving. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, with the, with the relationships that do come across, you know, what are the, like the number one thing that they seem to like really have uh, trouble grasping? It's like, is this my life? You know, this happened to us. Again, like with, with the dynamic that I've seen the most of, it's that, that we have two people living the same reality but having very different perspectives mm-hmm. and internal experiences. And so a lot of my work with those couples is around like, okay, how do we relearn communication? How do we relearn, you know, intimacy, not just physical intimacy, but like sharing and, and connecting, Um you know, and how do we show each other that we are listening and that even if, you know, I wasn't home when, you know, our kiddo had a meltdown, that I'm showing you that I get how exhausting that would have been for you to sit with them through that. Or if I didn't see the seizures happen, but you're telling me they were bad, like, how am I showing you in my, in the words that I'm using and in my body language that I get how much you've been through today? Mm. Um, it's a lot of that, of, of just kind of relearning kind communication almost validation yeah I, I think that for me i will admit to this i do have poor poor communication skills with nina because there's times kind when... communication skills <laughs> remember that part thank you yes i have that trouble too i'm admitting to something stop <laughs> so there's one thing that he's, i he's do being vulnerable he's putting it out there i'm working i'm working on it i'm a work you. in progress okay i appreciate you <laughs> anytime so there's things that i see with her that i can sense when she's starting to have anxiety mm-hmm. like she's starting to have like a panic mm-hmm. attack um because she gets anxious she'll start doing something in one place of the house and then she'll end up in three different parts of the house and not completing i'm like okay here it comes and as she's trying to get me to understand, because I could tell she's trying to, it's like I, a part of me cuts it off and says, look, it's all in your head. Not meaning that, you know, I'm being negative about saying it's all in your head, like you're making this stuff up. No, it's like, it's all in your head. I don't know what's going on, but it's being played out in the real world. So it's kind of confusing to me. So I have no idea how to help you. All right. All right. Let me, let me give you an analogy, right? Mm. Um, so my son, uh, he is, 
he is an expensive date at a restaurant. He loves to eat. <laughs> the kids, kids put it away. Yeah. So I come downstairs and, you know, it's breakfast and he's just kind of sitting at the breakfast table and he's got a bowl of cereal in front of him, but he's not touching it. It's very easy for me to say, Hey bud, like I see you not touching your breakfast. Is, is there something going on that you're not feeling good about? Would it help to talk about it? I don't have to, I don't have to, he doesn't have to tell me anything. I can just take what I know of him and, and reflect back to him what I'm seeing and then invite him to talk. Right. So in the example that you gave, you know, honey, you're, you're going from room to room and I, I just see the fear building up in you. So if you just, if you just need me to listen, I can do that. If it would help, if I just gave you a big hug and hold you until you say I can let go, I can do that too. Cause I don't know what's going on in your head, but I know that it's something from the way that you're acting. Wow. <laughs> I need therapy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to try that, Nina. I promise. Yeah, it just, it just sounds like exactly like what you're talking about, like yeah. being kind in your, in your words and not. And oh. I think sometimes it's easier for the other partner to get like defensive or upset or, you know, just be more reactive than understanding. Well, so much of so much of what we do, we try to fix each other's problems, right? Agree. And it's like if I come home and I've had a frustrating situation and I, I just start to tell my husband all about it, I don't want his advice. I don't want him to tell me what I should have done different or what I should do next time. I just want him to say, Wow, that really sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry that happened to you. <laughs> you know, we just we just wanna know that somebody else understands how we're feeling and processing what's happening. We don't actually need that person to come up with a solution for us. Um, which if you can like really get behind that idea is actually very freeing because you don't have to be brilliant and creative. You just, you just have to listen and show that you're listening. Okay. So that's number two. I got to work on listening. You can do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what it is? Listening, listening with an aim of showing that you're understanding. Okay. Right, which is different from listening and waiting for a chance to respond. Oh, yeah, that's the double Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, to jump that in. Yeah, I wait to like I'll finish her her point and I'll just jump in. And, and so, yes, I am I am guilty of that in a sense that I hear her tell me all this stuff at work and I'm giving her solutions and I'm like, and I don't think for a second like maybe she doesn't want a solution. Maybe she just needs somebody to talk to. And I don't stop to think about it because I'm ready to move on to the next thing because my background's in operations. So we're like the fix-it people. You know, we go in and yeah. train, organize, organize things, make sure everything's working. If there's an issue, we already know the answer to it already. And so I, I, I do that with her constantly. Sorry, Nina. I, I apologize. <laughs> on the air. <laughs> Live. <laughs> but uh, so how do you, I mean, for men, when you hear that, do you have like that consistent message for them in how to cope with situations like that is just to basically communicate and just listen? Yeah. I mean, you know, of course it's different for every person, right? Everybody comes into counseling. They had a life before they had a child with a disability, right? So they may have trauma history that factors in. They may have to have their own medical stuff going on. Right. So we have to like, look at the whole person. I'm not going to give everybody just the same blanket advice. Um, okay. But in general, yes, those are, <laughs> those are some of the strategies that a lot of couples find really helpful um, when they're struggling to, you know, share parenting and 
um, and find joy in parenting, right? That's, that's the, the main thing that happens. It just kind of takes the joy out of their relationship with each other. And they feel like they're both just working, working, working all the time, but never getting any payoff for that. Now, if you, uh, for someone who's going through something, like say, you know, for instance, it's like us, um, if we're going through something, but yet we don't recognize it, how can we tell? Especially because mm. I know that um, Nina and I have talked about it, that, you know, we, we've gone through trauma basically with our son's experience, you know, with his uh, yeah. seizures. And then I'm just trying to figure out, well, how do you define that, you know, the trauma versus a PTSD, anxiety, all these other labels. So, like, you could narrow it down to exactly what the issue is that you're ex- we're experiencing. As parents. Sure. So I definitely, you know, think if, if you, if you know that you've experienced trauma, if you think you may have, you know, you're having flashbacks, you're avoiding certain places, you're having nightmares. These are all like the classic PTSD symptoms. Okay. Um, for sure. You want to work with a qualified mental health professional, um, somebody who's licensed because I, I, I'm always shocked. There are so many times people come to me and they say, Oh, you know, I, I think I have anxiety. Like I'm, you know, I, I think it's anxiety. And then they'll describe, well, I just, I cry all the time and I can't get out of bed and I I've lost interest in things that I used to enjoy. And I'm like, Hey man, that's not anxiety. That's depression. Yes. Um, and it goes the flip too. Like people will come in saying, I think I'm really depressed, but then they're like, I'm awake all night and I'm worried. And it's like, Oh, well that's actually anxiety. So you definitely want to work with somebody who can help you, you know, sort out what your symptoms mean in the context of what your experience have been. You had another question, and I, I answered part of it, and I'm forgetting what the question was. <laughs> Can well, you remind me? No, well, you pretty much answered it. It's because it was just a matter of understanding what exactly you're going through when you're labeling it, whether mm. it's a trauma, PTSD, or anxiety. It was just like, you know, once you identify the behaviors, then you can identify what the issue is. Right, yeah. And I think what else I was just getting at is that we, um, as special needs parents, like say, I mean, ours was kind of clear in terms of like him having, you know, all these seizures, right? But I don't think some parents say uh, you have a child with severe behavior issues, right? And they have any mm-hmm. like I have, I know friends, and I have, and I work with kids that have these really severe, almost like crises, right? Mm-hmm. Over time, can that be considered trauma to the parent? Absolutely. That's what I think Elsa was getting. Yeah. So there's, there's not, you know, like the actual physical, like I've, I've watched my child be close to death or, yeah, you know, yeah. I, my child may hit me in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping for unexpected mm-hmm. reasons, you know, like certainly those, those things are trauma, but then, you know, there's also this, this vicarious trauma that parents can experience, which is, um, you know, like a secondary trauma, uh, that we call compassion fatigue, um, and I don't, I don't know if that's a term that either have you ever, y'all run across that with I other know. podcast guests. No, or? but I'm we're really interested in hearing more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've never heard it before. Okay, no. okay. So compassion fatigue is something that has been studied a whole bunch in people, uh, basically in like first responder or mental health people. So uh, nurses, therapists like myself, clergy, EMS responders, people people who spend a lot of time with other people who are suffering, basically, yeah. um, and it has not as of yet been studied in parents raising kids with disabilities. So I can't totally say this with, you know, data behind me, but um, everything that we see really supports that this is also happening in parents. 
And basically what it is, is watching someone that you love, someone who you care for, go through trauma, right? Mm -hmm. So you experience the trauma of watching Aiden have a seizure. It's scary. It, it, you know, raises your heart rate. You don't know what to do. You have to remember what's the med protocol. It's traumatic for you, but then you're also watching him go through this and, and watching him, you know, he must be so exhausted when one of these, you know, a major seizure is over and it might be painful to get certain kind of medications. Right. And so it's, it's this twofold thing of like, this is hard for me, but it's also hard for someone I care about. Um, over time, it starts to almost like erode your worldview, right? Like it, it's just sort of like the, the world is not the safe and content place that I thought that it was. That bad things can happen to, to good people, right? Um, and it can be really dangerous for caregivers who experience this on repeat without any kind of relief, Um you know, so it, it's something that, you know, we as professionals get a lot of teaching around. And I always tell people, you'd probably be shocked if I told you how much continuing ed that we as therapists have to do around compassion fatigue and maintaining our own well-being and avoiding burnout. Um, but parents, of course, don't get that, right? Parents get the message of you do everything for your child. You you never quit fighting for your child. Um and it's not a popular opinion, but I'm, I am a big fan of, of helping parents figure out, wait a minute, what, what can we let go of expectation wise um, so that you can take better care of yourself? Because this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. If you want to continue to show up for your child and, and care for them and be part of their life, you have to learn how to take care of yourself. You have to find relief from, you know, the firsthand trauma, but also this vicarious trauma. Um, cause if you don't, there are significant health and mental health consequences. I have well, to agree with that. Yeah. Wow. And I, I love the definition. So if for, if for me, I've worked in a hospital for 13 years and I, and I tell Osiris mm. this, I've seen a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, of course, deaths, um, and I don't know why, but patients, I work with patients like very closely, sometimes for an hour mm -hmm. and a half at a time. Um, I'm a physical therapist, so mm -hmm. I'll see patients twice a week for months. Given that, just like you in your profession, they start to get really personal with you. So I've heard people get telling me that they are being abused, they're being raped, yeah. or all these, all these stories. And then you have a patient, yeah. one day they're here, next thing they're dead. Yeah, and you know yeah. you're dealing with that, and then you then I, I, I'm dealing with the trauma from my son. So sometimes I'm telling my husband, telling my husband, I'm like, I just want to watch junk food. I just I want to just get away from reality, <laughs> all of this. And it's hard for him to understand that, you know. So I, I love the your definition because it, it after a while you don't even think about it, you know. Yeah, you kind of numb out to it, but that's, yeah. you know this, that's a dangerous place to be because then you stop caring about the things that really matter to you and the passion that led you to your profession, the passion you have for parenting, um, you know, it can all start to kind of wash away if you're not really careful and really take care of yourself. Yeah, I, you know, just listening to you talk about compassion fatigue and realizing that we've experienced it, and for Nina, it's been 
nonstop. Now I think about, it, I mean, mm-hmm. going back to 2015 when uh, Aiden was diagnosed, three to four days prior to that, because I remember it's like around Mother's Day week was like leading up a few days before Mother's Day. I was in the hospital because I was diagnosed with a, uh, an issue with my heart. So they stated I didn't have that much time. So they were like really saying like, if we don't take care of you, you may drop dead soon. So a day after I get out of the hospital, two, three days later, my son, you know, basically drops and has a full grand mall. Oh my gosh. And so I'm still trying to recover from surgery. So it's ongoing. And so it's like one thing after another. So now I have to forego, you know, thinking about my recovery and just really like hands on deck and us, you know, taking care of Aiden. So now that I'm reflecting and thinking about it, like, so Nina hasn't really had a break emotionally from all this. Mm-hmm. For me, I kind of like try to push things back and just like deal with what's going on ahead. You know, I got to stay strong. I got to stay, you know, keep going, keep pushing forward. I can't show any weakness. I can't, you know, shed a few tears here and there. I don't think Nina's ever seen me cry out openly about anything. Have you, Nina? Maybe like a handful of times. Yeah, but those were movies. They were mushy. But I, I <laughs> oh, you cried when Aiden did his well, math. Yes, yes, I did. But that, <laughs> but that, that was like, <laughs> but that was like this week. <laughs> but you know, five, six years of going through what you know what we've been going through, I, I tried not to show that weakness because I know that you know. I need to stay strong for the family. I have to be there. I have to be focused. I can't, you know, I have to play that, you know, that male role, that macho role in uh, making sure that, you know, that we're stable, you know? So I want my wife to be able to release that, you know? But, I mean, granted, it's, you know, you know society saying these things, but that's something that, you know, I grew up in. Yeah. So yeah. that's something I've seen. The only person I've ever seen cry was my mother. That's it. It's a hard stigma to overcome mm-hmm. right to say i'm going to be a man and, and show vulnerability mm-hmm. um or to you know the flip side to say i'm going to be a mom and say i need to do for me first you know both of those are really taboo in our culture yeah. um you know and especially within certain like smaller cultural groups like it's real. you know I've, I've worked with a couple hispanic dads and it's, they're like terrified that somebody's going to see them walk in the building mm-hmm. um you know, it's like if I if I acknowledge any sign of weakness, um, you know, that's it. My life is over. Everyone gives up on me. And it, I hate that because it's exactly that, that vulnerability, you know, to be able to turn to your wife and say, this is so sad and I'm so scared. And to show her how much it affects you. Like, what a chance for connection, right? Um you know, that's what I try to give the the couple specifically that I work with is that freedom to like be open with each other about what, what are your fears? What, what about this is hard for you? Um, so, you know, I hope you can take that away. It's something to think about. No, no, I am definitely going to take that with me. That's the number three. So yes, I'm making <laughs> mental note of all the things I got to work on, but I, it, you know, it's one of those things where you raised in, uh, cause like Nina stated, you know, she worked in the hospital. She's seen a lot of, you know, sad things. And I told her, like, I grew up around things like that. So for me, I'm just, I've become, like, desensitized. I don't want to be saying that I'm negative about it or anything like that. It doesn't affect me. But to the point where it's like, yeah, I know. I've seen it. Yeah, it's exactly what happens is that, you know, your, your, your body and your brain try to keep you safe. And so your, your nervous system just sort of, like, goes into shutdown. 
and is like, nope, we can't, we can't process any more of this. We're just not going to feel any feelings about, you know, horrible things, bad things. Um, you know, and if you hit that point, it can be, it can be really hard to, to come back from that and be able to get to a place where you can feel, you know, grief and, and not worry that it's going to overwhelm you. Now, have you had clients who say, I, I just, I just can't sleep. I can't shake this. I, Oh yeah. We talk about not being able to sleep in my office all the time. That and laundry are like the two things that come up. <laughs> oh, laundry? All the time. Laundry. Yeah. Uh-oh. Laundry Nina. sort of... Laundry represents like that which could never be finished in our lives, right? I mean, like we talk about actual laundry, but we talk about laundry in the sense of when you're parenting, when you're running a house, when you're raising kids, like there are some things where you'll just never, ever be done. And how do you accept that and be okay with just not doing it sometimes when, you know, your child's needs demand it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the reason why I'm laughing and she, Nina as well, because we have an issue with laundry. I, I love doing laundry every weekend and she has an issue with that she's like you spend too much time doing laundry you don't spend time with me i said but it's my moment i get to you know just connect with myself i sit and do laundry i'll fold clothes i'll do the whole nine yards and it drives her nuts (laughs) (laughs) so when you said laundry i'm really dying (laughs) (laughs) see nina she understands me (laughs) uh now have you done like a group therapy with like the parents and the children together? Um, sometimes when I'm working with young adults, mm-hmm. uh, especially parents will be involved, um, you know, as a more like family, like a couple of times I've done like true family therapy, but that's a little more rare. It's usually more parent participating in a, in a teen or adult child individual therapy. Um, you know, for whether that's for accountability or just, you know, uh, some of my clients who have uh, cognitive issues just to help them translate the skills that we're practicing in office, you know, into their, their daily lives. Um, you know, so parents will participate in those ways. Oh, okay. Now, do you use integrated, um, I guess, integrated types of medicine involved or do you know parents that are saying, well, I'm taking Xanax or I'm taking um, CBD oil or I use cannabis or I'm doing mm-hmm. something to, or I'm even taking up meditation or uh, yoga to help cope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Com- complimentary and alternative therapies. Oh, okay, <laughs> yes. got it. It's um, the, the fancy name for what you're talking about. Besides meds, obviously, that's, you know, just strictly pharmacotherapy. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do a lot of encouraging, um, you know, body work, whether that's, you know, deep breathing, meditation, progressive muscle relaxation, um, all of those kinds of things. Cause I, I, you know, obviously just, you know, hashtag I'm not your therapist, but I am a therapist. So I hear you both having like little ways that you escape, right? Like for Nina, it's, I just want to watch my junk food TV shows. And for you, Osiris, it's like, I just want to fold the laundry and that's like a zone out <laughs> period. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I always, you know, we want to encourage people, like, when you get a minute for respite, spend that minute doing something to bring your attention to the present moment, right? Like, do something to ground you in the room that you're in, to notice with all your five senses, what is actually happening um, right now? How am I feeling in my body? What is, what is the space that I'm in? Um, pay attention to your breathing. Even just a minute or two of that, that kind of awareness. Uh, does has tremendous benefit for our mental health for for staving off anxiety and depression, um, and obviously it's good for just our physical health, right? To have awareness of our breathing and 
get full oxygenation and our breath and all that stuff that, that everybody knows that their doctor tells them at their physical and everything. Um, but so yeah, I'm a big fan of incorporating that. And then a lot of my clients do work with a psychiatrist. I'm not a prescriber. Okay. Um, but folks do work, you know, with psychiatrists as well, if, if they want to get medication on board. If you had to, um, to tell parents one thing or maybe a couple of things, what would it be, especially like parents like ourselves who really haven't had some downtime, but only as of late because, you know, Aiden has gotten better. We've gotten better seizure control. Um, He's actually Mm -hmm. active in school. He's learning, but it seems like we're still on that high alert, you know, just always sleeping lightly. We can hear, you know, anything drop. If we can even, if he has a seizure in his sleep, like we already up and we're already aware, like, you know, what -hmm. can you tell us to say, hey, this you know, one day at a time or something. <laughs> um, so that, Anything, that, please. <laughs> that feeling you're describing, right? That, that constant awareness, it's vigilant. Yeah. And there are actually a couple of really good research studies that, that, you know, parents who are interested in that kind of thing can look up about the role of vigilance in parents of kids with special needs. It is significant. Um, and it is, uh, not surprisingly, uh, not good for you <laughs> to live at that level of awareness. Because if you're, if you're sleeping with one ear open, you're not really sleeping. Yeah. Um, yes. if, if you say, I love to cook, but then you're cooking, listening for what's happening in the other room, you're not really getting the enjoyment of that, right? So you're, you're sort of living a half-life um, when you have vigilance. So parents, you know, they don't, they don't like it when I tell them this, but I'm like, you know, what we have to do is find time and space for you to care for yourself. Like, you can't do yoga at home. It's just not going to work. Your child's going to find you or you're going to hear your partner struggling with them in the other room and like they're having a meltdown or they're having a medical issue and you're going to leave what you're doing for your self-care and you're going to go help them, right? Like that's just what you're going to do. So if we know that, we know you have to have physical separation from your child to have any kind of true respite, um, so that would be one thing. And I know that that's extra hard right now with the pandemic, but especially as the weather starts to get better, it should still be possible to get even just 30 minutes a day. Um, you know, and when people tell me they can't get that, then I say that's a real hopefully wake up call that we got to look at your support systems. We got to look at who's helping you out and build up your, your network of people who love you and care about you and can help you, um, you know, in your day to day life. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, you know, I think is what I, I just mentioned a little bit, but again, spend time checking in with yourself and just being aware of the present moment. Um, it really is so powerful. Even, you know, I, one of my favorite exercises I do with people, it's silly, but I'll have them take like a tiny little piece of chocolate and, you know, the kind that you would normally just pop in your mouth and it would be swallowed and done within mm-hmm. two seconds. Um, and I'll say, look, let's spend two whole minutes eating this small piece of chocolate. And so like really like look at the wrapper, notice the colors, smell the chocolate, think about what it reminds you of, put it on your tongue and just like swirl it around, but don't take a bite, you know, like really go slow and notice every little detail. And when people do that, they're like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea how satisfying, like, you know, that one little dove square or whatever could be. Um, But when we force ourselves to slow down and notice, the things around us, it, it has so much benefit for our mental health. And it also, you know, it, it's almost one of those things like for the parents I work with, it doesn't even really matter what you do. 
what matters is that you believe you are worth doing something for, right? It's like, I took time for myself and that's important and that matters and I'm going to do it again because it felt that good. That's, that's like the secret sauce to mental health. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. It makes a lot of sense. Oh my God. Thank you very much. And I thank you as well for being on the show and uh, really sharing some great wisdom and some insight because uh, we've been coping. Um, I would have to say I've been coping and I guess been avoidance as well and, you know, facing what we've been dealing with um, totally. I mean, I guess Nina is the strongest one out of both of us that she actually sought out help. And uh, I decided to like, you know, bury it and work with it myself. But listening to you, I'm like, hmm, I need to reconsider. But uh, I, we definitely appreciate you coming on and sharing all that you have done and what you're doing um, with us. Thank you very much. Yeah, we definitely we appreciate it, and I, it's very important for us to educate the audience and um, people who are going through the same thing as us, and that you know they can seek help, and maybe what they're they're going through is a, a form of trauma. So yeah, and yeah. even even best part is like they don't even have to wait. So. You know, someone who's a parent, you know, newly parents, maybe a year in, two years Mm -hmm. in, they realize there's Mm -hmm. something wrong and they've already gotten their diagnosis. Like, why wait and, you know, seek out for help for themselves while they're taking care of their child. Uh, Now, if our audience wanted to get in touch with you, how would they be able to reach out to you? Sure. So um, my website, it's rosereef.com. Reef is spelled R-E-I-F as in Frank. Um, And people are certainly welcome to come check out. I have a blog post uh, where I write... um, posts for the different groups of people I work with. So some are more geared towards adults with disabilities and others are more for parents. Um, and so follow along there. And of course, you know, Facebook, Pinterest, all that folks can find me there as well. Um, I do always like to just say that our, our licensure laws for mental health have not quite cut up to what our technology can do. So because I'm licensed in North Carolina, I'm only able to meet with clients who are in North Carolina at the time of our meeting. Um, so, uh, please, please don't reach out to me if you live in other states. I hate to turn people away. Um, but legally I, I can't work with you, but I do have some resources on my website for people who are in other states, other parts of the world, um, who are looking for a therapist with, with similar specialities, um, to help folks find and connect with those people in their area. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I hope you can coach, coach the trainers, you know, where you can just go out there and start <laughs> coaching everybody else to do what you do. Well, thank you. Thank you both so much for so many things for having me on for your, your vulnerability and openness tonight while we talked and, um, you know, especially for, for creating this awesome community that you have. There are so many kids like Aiden, whose parents are struggling. And I know that you, you give them so much hope with the the conversations that you, you have with such openness. So thank you. Thank you for being available. That that helps us, you know, because really um, there's a time where we thought we were alone in this. And we just started finding a community of people. And so we wanted to say, you know what, we're going to reach back out and help. And this is our platform. And this is what we're using it for to help. It's amazing. I love it. All right. Thank you for letting me be part of it. We appreciate you. And uh, thank you. And any time that you are available, we'll, uh, you know, we definitely want to reach out to you again. Oh, I would love that. Thank you. Thank you. You have a good night. Good night. You too. Bye-bye.